Father, even as you water the earth with your showers of rain, so you water our souls with your showers of mercy and grace and truth. Lord, we pray that we would be refreshed in this day and in this time period as we consider the truths of your word. In Christ's name, amen. And if you are staying with us, we are continuing to go through the cost of discipleship. We're utilizing Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, classic work and obviously departing from it on uh, more than a few occasions. We'll be departing from it a little bit today again. But I do think that Bonhoeffer gives us some very needed and practical direction regarding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the first principle that Bonhoeffer lays out is that discipleship is a response to the call. You cannot take it upon yourself. You must be called to discipleship. But after you are called, the demand is for every single aspect of your life. And so he's gone into that as he looks at uh, Christ's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, which is directed to the disciples that are gathered there. So this morning I want to look at verses 17 through 20 of Matthew chapter 5. So could someone read Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20? So, of course, we all know that who are the group of people most known for their strict observance to the law during Jesus' day? The Pharisees. So, for Christ to say that your righteousness must exceed... the Pharisees immediately sets forward an impossible standard. The Pharisees are the ones who are doing it the best. They're tithing mint and anise and cumin. They don't go grocery shopping unless when they come back home, they ceremonially baptize their house and their pots and their pans. Every single moment of every single day, is focused in the Pharisee's mind on fulfilling the law. And obviously we know who are the bad guys in the gospel accounts. The Pharisees. They're the bad guys. We consistently hear the Pharisees being dinged on. And what Bonhoeffer points out, I think gets at the heart of this phrase of a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. Bonhoeffer says, There is no fulfillment 
of the law apart from communion with God and there is no communion with God apart from the law. That's an important principle. (laughs) There's no communion with God, or there's no fulfillment of the law apart from communion with God. That was the Pharisees' problem. They did not see that communion with God was the prerequisite to their fulfillment of the law. They must first be declared righteous. They must first be declared to be in communion with God. They must come through the sacrificial system, acknowledging their own sin and death. To seek to fulfill the law apart from communion with God lands you in the Pharisaic ditch. But simultaneously, to think that you and I can have communion with God apart from the demands of the law, lands us in the other ditch. And that's the problem that Bonhoeffer is directly addressing in his day, is this idea that you can have Jesus as Savior, but you should also have him as Lord. The carnal Christian, the one who does not bow the knee in every aspect of their life to God, the, the, the doctrine that Bonhoeffer is speaking against would say that person is still going to heaven, they just don't get all the blessings of a life or the rewards in heaven or whatever. And Bonhoeffer says, no, these two things, Jesus never makes a distinction between communion with him and obedience to him. They are always one and the same. You cannot have the fulfillment of the law apart from God and communion with God. And we all agree on that. Nobody wants to be a Pharisee. But the flip side of the coin is equally true. You cannot have communion with God apart from his law. And then Bonhoeffer goes on to say in in continuation of this theme... And I think he's, he's absolutely correct on this. Because Jesus Christ is in perfect communion with God, only Jesus Christ can perfectly fulfill the law. That's how Jesus becomes our law keeper. His perfect communion with the Father is always held first. He does not have perfect communion with the Father because he keeps the law. He has perfect communion with the Father and from that keeps the Father's law. From that keeps the law of God. And that again is is an absolutely critical distinction. Uh, it's a it's a critical distinction to understand. And I will say this, as a young person growing up in a Christian household, a young person growing up 
my father was a, a Presbyterian ordained minister and a medical missionary. I was raised on the catechism. In my stupid, ignorant young head, this is not on my parents, this is not their fault at all, <laughs> it was 100% me. But in my stupid, ignorant head, I thought that walking with Christ meant keeping all the rules, being a good boy, wearing my hair cut above my ear because hippies and rebels wear their hair long, wearing, not having a beard on my face, having a clean-shaven face because hippies and drug dealers have beards. And so we need to make it clear that we are not of the world. And so we stayed in this, in this very, uh, outward, or in my mind, let me, let me emphasize, in my mind, we stayed in this very outward righteousness oriented understanding of God. And my little heart was corrupt because my little heart did not truly think that I was a sinner. And the reason that I truly did not think that I was a sinner was because I was doing all the stuff. Nobody could say that I was running around doing drugs or that I was drinking alcohol or that I was smoking cigarettes or that I was wanting to become a hippie or a drug dealer by wearing long hair or having a beard. Nobody could say that. You look at me on the outside and I look buttoned up and clean and I'm following the rules. And what my little wicked little heart, stupid little head, didn't grasp is this basic truth that Jesus Christ is the only possible one who can be my law keeper. And I think if we understand that, if you just just camp on that for a minute. Just camp on that for for some 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 meditation. If we truly understand that only Jesus can be the law keeper on our behalf. It's going to turn our obedience from earning from measuring from comparing, it's going to turn our obedience from all of those things completely upside down. It's going to turn our obedience into delight. It's going to turn our obedience into joy. It's going to turn our obedience into thanksgiving. And I'll be honest with you, that still doesn't mean that it's not hard. It still doesn't mean that it's not natural to us because I am guilty as I'm guessing every single one of us are guilty of waking up in the morning and getting so distracted with my emails, with my phone call messages, with my text messages that I just say to myself, oh, we'll put off the Bible reading and prayer until tomorrow morning. I'm way too busy. And then I'll find myself at noon, having started my day at 6 o'clock, 6.30 in the morning, and having rushed all the way through the day and all the busyness and all the things, and sit down and say, I'm now ready to do some sermon preparation, 
and realize I neglected to start the day with my wife in scripture reading, word, and prayer. A simple thing. It literally does not take more than 10 or 15 minutes. And yet, how often do I find myself saying, I'm too busy. I'm rushing ahead. That communion with God absolutely changes everything. I'll give you another just example uh, of, of how we can so easily get distracted here. One of the things and I, I do, I mean, I'm, I'm being, you're, you're, you're getting a peek into my life. Uh, I tend to get up in the morning and I get my cup of coffee, I sit down at my computer, and the next thing I know, it's one o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm still wearing my sweatpants and my t-shirt, and I've been doing nothing but putting out fires all morning long. And I'm constantly thinking, I also have to do this and this and this and this, and I'm just way too busy. And I've discovered some simple little truth that sounds like a Jordan Peterson thing. Some just basic truth of how to live as a man. And I would say this probably applies to women too. I've discovered that turning, that, that taking a shower in the morning at seven o'clock, setting my alarm that my shower is going to be at seven o'clock in the morning, turns my entire morning upside down. It turns it from running after emergencies and putting out fires. It flips it into planning. Because I'm standing there in the shower and I'm thinking of all the things I got to do. And as I'm shampooing what little hair is left on my head, I'm saying, okay, this is my A1 priority. This is my A2 priority. And by the time I get out of the shower, I'm like, yeah, I feel productive. I've got a plan, I'm ready to tackle this thing, and I feel so much better by 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And it's a stupid little thing. <laughs> it's a stupid little thing. Take a freaking shower. It's a stupid little thing. And yet it completely transforms the way that I engage my day, how I feel emotionally about whether today was a productive day or whether today was just me chasing after every little wildfire and getting nothing ultimately accomplished. And that is the same challenge for us with regards to discipleship. If we are being intentional, if we are being diligent, if we are being disciplined to start our day saying, Jesus Christ, I am your disciple. I want you to teach me from your word. I want you to speak to me by your Holy Spirit. I want to start my day. One of the things that uh, I say often, if you've ever had any marriage counseling or pre-marriage counseling with me, uh, you've heard me say this over and over and over again in every marriage counseling session I've ever had. Every single morning needs to be started with a very basic prayer. God, let me walk in harmony with you today. And let me walk in harmony with the people in my house. And particularly my wife. That's my first prayer. Every single morning, let me be in harmony with you. Let me be in harmony with my wife. Because I know if I am walking in harmony with God, and I'm walking in harmony with my wife, 
then my day is going to be a good day. It doesn't matter what happens. I may get phone calls out of the blue. I may get cars that explode. I may get houses and trees that fall on my roof. I can have all kinds of crazy chaos. But if I'm in harmony with God, if I am walking in His will, and I am have a clear conscience before Him that I am in communion with God, and if I am walking in harmony with the help meet that God has given me, the, the person that I rely on for wisdom, the person that I rely on honestly for moral uh, <laughs> it tells me to stop cutting corners uh, morally and all that sort of thing. The person that I need in my life, if I'm walking in harmony with her, then it's going to be a good day. The circumstances are irrelevant. In the same way as we approach the law of God, if you approach it from this standpoint that only Jesus Christ, the one in perfect communion with God, can fulfill all of God's law on my behalf. And for those of you who took the uh, effort to come early today, there's a little interesting thing out of today's sermon. Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 1. A tiny little verse in this quote-unquote obscure book of the Bible, is one of the most significant verses in the Bible. It's the grounds for Jesus Christ declaring his divinity before the high priest because he was in obedience to Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 1. Even the most insignificant seemingly even the most seemingly insignificant portions of God's law, Jesus has kept completely on your behalf and on my behalf. Therefore, your and my obedience to the law completely changes. And young people particularly, if you can get this principle in your head, why do you want to do what is right is it because mom and dad are looking over your shoulder? Is it because you have heard lots of Sunday school messages and sermons saying you should do what's right? Why are we to do the right thing? And the reason that the Christian says we are to do the right thing is because I love this one so much who fulfilled this law perfectly for me. And I want to be just like him. That's aspirational. That's not earning. And it completely changes, completely changes our outward righteousness. So in focusing on these words that are here in this text, uh, Bonhoeffer does rightly emphasize our duty to love the law and walk according to God's commands. But Bonhoeffer fails to see the context uh, in this passage. And I think the context in this passage is important because Bonhoeffer is making a very serious point about the Pharisees. And you can see that if you go on to look at the examples that he gives in the text. He says uh, that 
in terms of anger, you are not to murder, but then he says you're not to even have hatred in your heart. In terms of lust, he says you're not to violate the seventh commandment, but you're also not even to have lust in your heart. In terms of oaths, he says you shall fulfill your oath, but he says you should have a heart that is one of pure integrity. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. There shouldn't be any need for an oath. Simply your character should be your oath. In terms of retaliation, he said, you've heard it say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you that if someone strikes you, you should turn the other cheek. The heart should be one of meekness and submission. In terms of loving your neighbors and hating your enemies, he says that you are to love your enemies. Do you notice how each of these shows a heart that is perfectly in line with the outward action and and how he connects that outward action to the heart, right? You see that parallel all the way through his examples. But we skipped over the one that's right in the middle. So if we're following this theme of an outward example with an inward moral heart with an inward attitude, then look at verses 31 and 32. Because that's right there in the center. Verses 31 and 32. Now remember, every single other example, anger, the heart. Lust, the heart. Oath-taking, the heart. Loving your enemies, uh, or, or loving your friends and hating your enemies, the heart. So where's the heart in verses 31 and 32? I want you to see it for yourself. (laughs) Does verse 31 and 32, all you people who ever watch Sesame Street, Three of these things belong together. Three of these things are kind of the same. One of these things is not like the others. (laughs) Do you see? The passage on divorce has nothing about the heart. There's nothing in verses 31 and 32 about the heart. Is that significant? I think yes. (laughs) I don't think Matthew is an idiot. And if he's recording the Sermon on the Mount faithfully, then I certainly don't think Jesus was an idiot. Jesus is very clearly making a point here. When he speaks of a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, which is the last part of our section that we looked at this morning, he describes it. What does a life that is better than a Pharisaic life look like in terms of anger? Well, it means not only am I not going to just clench my teeth and not say to my brother, you fool, I'm going to control my temper, but even from my own heart, I'm going to be compassionate. What does it mean to be someone who doesn't violate the seventh commandment? Well, it doesn't just mean... I don't go off and grab a woman and all of that. It means I don't even cross that line in my heart. I, 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 I put that line down way before it ever gets to the physical. 
What does it mean that I love my, or that, that I'm uh, uh, not doing an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? It means that when someone abuses me, I say, take even my coat. I'm, I'm humble, I'm merciful, I'm gentle. What does it mean in terms of loving your enemy? It's from the heart. Every single one of these are Christ-giving examples of how God, the Father, has treated the nation of Israel. God, the Father, is the one who, when Israel, his friend, has betrayed him, yet has shown Israel love. God, the Father, is the one that even when Gomer, a type of Israel, is cheating on God, Even when Israel is cheating, God's heart is tender, always, towards his bride. God the Father is the one who has been treated poorly by his children, Israel. And so that divorce section in the middle there is a warning. It's a warning that if your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, then you will be cut off. And I think as we see that larger context, it actually serves to underscore Bonhoeffer's point of the critical importance of obedience to the law. Um, So the disciple has the advantage over the Pharisee in that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law. And so that in communion with God, we are faced not with a law which has never been fulfilled, but with one whose demands have already been satisfied. To love God's law is to love God. To pursue holiness in every area of our life is to pursue the character of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, that's what discipleship is. Being like the discipler. Be the, the, the pupil being like the master, following after the master. And that's the call that Jesus sets in front of each one of us. A righteousness that far exceeds you being a good boy, you being a good girl, you doing all the right things, you lining up all the, all the things in their proper order and all of those things, far exceeds that. An obedience that simply loves God and loves his law and wants to be conformed to it. So uh, we're going to be picking up this theme in Leviticus chapter 5 this morning and the, the passion for holiness. But that is what Jesus Christ is really setting in front of his disciples here. That you and I must have a righteousness that is far superior to the righteousness of the people that were known as the most righteous people in his day. And the way in which it is far superior is because it comes from a heart that is responding in love to Christ's full and complete obedience to the law on your behalf. So, with those thoughts in mind, let's uh, close and go for our refreshments. Father, we pray that as we see this high demand, this high calling, this high challenge, that even as we rest in the completed work of Jesus Christ, his righteousness applied to us, 
our sin applied to him. Yet, at the same time, Father, our desire is to be like our beloved. Make us more and more like our gracious, loving, gentle, holy, righteous master. We pray in his name. Amen.